foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. Revolution. I'm Marcy Winograd, coordinator of Code Pink Congress, and this is Anti-War Code Pink Radio. We are broadcasting on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, Texas, and KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Also on other community and college radio stations, as well as Spotify and iTunes. Today on Code Pink Radio, Medea Benjamin and Nicholas J.S. Davies, co-authors of the new book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Let's listen to their interview on Democracy Now!, followed by their talk on Code Pink Congress. Washington Post is reporting the Biden administration's ruled out the idea of pushing Ukraine to negotiate with Russia to end the war even though many U.S. officials believe neither side is, quote, capable of winning the war outright. This comes as the war in Ukraine appears to be escalating on a number of fronts. On Saturday, a massive explosion damaged a key bridge connecting Russia to, the, to Crimea, which Moscow annexed in 2014. Russian President Vladimir Putin accused Ukraine of committing what he called a terrorist act. Since then, Russian missiles have struck over a dozen Ukrainian cities, including Kyiv and Lviv, killing at least 20 people. On Tuesday night, President Biden was interviewed by Jake Tapper on CNN. Would you be willing to meet with him at the G20? Look, I have no intention of meeting with him. But, uh, for example, if he came to me at the G20 and said, I want to talk about the release of Griner, I'd meet with him. I mean, it would depend. But I, I, I can't imagine. Look, we've taken a position. I just did a G7 meeting this morning. The idea, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. So I'm not about to, nor is anyone else, prepared to negotiate with Russia about them staying in Ukraine, keeping any part of Ukraine, etc. Despite Biden's comments, there are growing calls for the U.S. to push for negotiations. On Sunday, General Mike Mullen, the former chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, appeared on ABC this week. It also speaks to the need, I think, to get to the table. I'm a little concerned about the language, uh, which uh, we're about at the top, if you President will. President Biden's language. President Biden's language. We're about at the top of uh, the language scale, if you will. Uh, so, and I think we need to back off that a little bit and do everything we possibly can to try to get to the table to resolve this thing. We're joined now by two guests, Medea Benjamin, co-founder of the peace group Code Pink, and Nicholas J.S. Davies. They're the co-authors of the forthcoming book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. 
Medea, let's begin with you in Washington, D.C. I mean, you look at this past week, um, the massive raining down of missiles and drone strikes by the Russian military across Ukraine, all the way into western Ukraine and places like Lviv and the capital, Kyiv. Um, and you see that President, that President Putin is threatening to use a nuclear bomb. Is negotiation possible? What would that look like? And what needs to happen to accomplish that? Negotiations are not only possible, they are absolutely essential. There have been some negotiations on uh, key issues so far, such as the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Uh, such as getting the grain out of Ukraine, uh, such as the prisoner swaps. But there have been no negotiations on the big issues. And uh, Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state, has not met with Lavrov. We just heard in that clip how Biden does not want to talk to Putin. Uh, the only way this war is going to end is by negotiations. And we have seen the U.S. actually torpedo negotiations, starting from the proposals that the Russians put forward right before the invasion, uh, which was summarily dismissed by the U.S. And then we saw when the uh, Turkish government was mediating talks at the end of March, early April, how it was the uh, U.K. president, Boris Johnson, as well as Secretary of Defense Austin, uh, who torpedoed those negotiations. So, uh, I don't think that um, it is realistic to think that there is going to be a clear victory by the Ukrainians that are going to be able to get back every inch of territory, like they're now saying, including Crimea and all of Donbass. Uh, there has to be compromises on both sides. And we, the American public, have to push the White House and our leaders in Congress to call for proactive negotiations now. Uh, Medea, could you be a little more specific about those talks uh, that occurred, uh, 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 sponsored by Turkey and uh, and also Israel, as I understand, in terms of uh, what was the potential uh, way forward uh, to a ceasefire that was torpedoed? Because most Americans are not aware uh, that early in the war there was a possibility of being able to uh, stop the, fi the fighting. Well, yes, and we go into great detail in our book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, about exactly what happened there and how the proposal that included neutrality for Ukraine, uh, 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 removal of Russian troops, uh, how the uh, Donbass region was really going to be uh, going back to the Minsk Accords that were uh, never fulfilled. Uh, and there was a, a very positive response from the Ukrainians to the Russian proposals. Uh, and then we saw Boris Johnson coming to meet with Zelensky and saying that the, quote, collective West uh, was not about to make an agreement uh, with the Russians and was there to support Ukraine in this fight. And then we saw the same kind of message coming from the Secretary of Defense Austin, who said that the goal was to weaken Russia. So the goalpost changed and that uh, entire agreement was blown up. And we now see that Zelensky, from once saying that uh, he was accepting neutrality for Ukraine, is now calling for a fast-tracking uh, NATO uh, application for Ukraine. Uh, and we see the Russians that have also hardened their views 
uh, by having these uh, referendum and then trying to annex these four provinces. Uh, so if, if that agreement had actually moved forward, I think we would have seen an end, an end to this war. It's going to be harder now, uh, but it's still the only way forward. The effect of what we're seeing uh, is effectively a sort of ratcheting up of tensions. If, if uh, the U.S. and the U.K. are willing to uh, uh, torpedo negotiations when they're happening, but then they're not willing to, uh, you, you know, they're willing to, they're willing to go and tell uh, Zelensky and Ukraine what to do when it's a matter of killing the negotiations. But now Biden says he's not willing to tell them to restart negotiations. So, so it's pretty clear where that leads, which is to endless war. But the, the truth is that every war ends at the negotiating table. And at the U.N. General Assembly a couple of weeks ago, uh, world leaders, one after the other, stepped up to remind uh, NATO and Russia and Ukraine of that. And that the, what the U.N. Charter calls for is for the peaceful resolution of conflicts through diplomacy and negotiation. The U.N. Charter does, does not say that when a country commits aggression that they should therefore be subjected to an endless war that kills millions of people. That is just might makes right. Um, so uh, actually 66 countries spoke up at the UN General Assembly to restart peace negotiations and ceasefire negotiations as soon as possible. And that included, for instance, the foreign minister of India, who said, I'm being we're being pressured to take sides here, but we have been clear from the very beginning that we are on the side of peace. And, and this, this is what the world is calling for. Those 66 countries uh, include India and China with billions of people. Those 66 countries represent the majority of the world's population. They are mostly from the global south. Their people are already suffering from the shortages of food coming from Ukraine and, and Russia. They are facing the prospect of famine. And, and on top of that, we're now facing a serious danger of nuclear war. Matthew Bunn, who's a nuclear weapons expert at Harvard University, told NPR the other day that he estimates a 10 to 20 percent chance of the use of nuclear weapons uh, in, in Ukraine or, or over, over Ukraine. And, um, and, and that was before the uh, incident on the Kerch Strait Bridge and, and the retaliatory bombing by Russia. So if, this, if both sides just keep escalating, what will Matthew Bunn's estimate of, of the chance of nuclear war be in a few months' time or a year's time? And, and, and Joe Biden himself, at a fundraiser at media mogul James Murdoch's house, just chatting with his, his financial backers in front of the press, said he does not believe that either side can use a tactical nuclear weapon without it then escalating to Armageddon.
Democracy Now! guests Nicholas J.S. Davies and Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin, co-authors of the new book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Earlier, Code Pink Congress hosted Medea and Nicholas at the start of a nationwide book tour. Let's listen. You know, when people talk about uh, it's not, you know, we can't give in to somebody who's holding the sword of Damocles over our head with this uh, nuclear threat or even a veiled nuclear threat. My response is the United States is the one that dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, annihilating 200,000 people and estimated. Uh, we are the ones, along with the Soviet Union at the time and now Russia, uh, escalating the arms race with new nuclear weapons. This is an implicit threat. So the only answer is to abolish nuclear weapons. Otherwise, anyone, anyone who's in charge of any country that has a nuclear arsenal could issue these kinds of threats. So the, I don't see the answer as we can't give in to him. I see the answer as we have to abolish nuclear weapons and sign on to the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which NATO opposes, okay? So I have a question and then maybe Cole can ask a question and we'll take a look at the chat. My question is about the Minsk Peace Accord. Uh, why did it succeed in part and why did it fail? Yeah, well, it, it, um, it, it succeeded in part because uh, both sides did cooperate to, um, with the ceasefire and the buffer zone. I mean, fighting went on for a little while after the signing of the peace accord, but over the, the month, you know, months following the signing of the, of the accord, um, <clears throat> both sides did pull back heavy weapons from the buffer zone as they were required to do. And, you know, the OSCE with 30, you know, 1300 monitors and staff in Ukraine, um, <clears throat> you know, really did an amazing job of monitoring the ceasefire. And they were not there to take sides. They were simply there to, you know, keep track of, of and, 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 you know, if there, were, if, if there were violations of the ceasefire, they reported on them and, and they tried to mediate. And um, <clears throat> so in fact, if you, if you look at the, the casualty figures, from that point on, the casualty figures declined and declined and declined to the point where for the last couple of years up to 20, you know, 2020 and 2021, more people were killed by unexploded ordnance that exploded and uh, landmines planted back in 24 and 2015 than were killed by active fire. So, I mean, um, so that part of the agreement was working, but uh, the, the conflict was not resolved because like the conflict today and like every conflict, it required a political solution. And Minsk II included a political solution, a political roadmap that was supposed to be followed. And that involved, in order to keep Donetsk and Luhansk inside Ukraine, the agreement was that the Ukrainian parliament would grant them uh, a new status as autonomous, autonomous regions within Ukraine, give them a, a, a much greater degree of self-government, um, and which effectively would have allowed them to 
uh, you know, maintain the links that, that many of them wanted with Russia. Um, so, and also for there to be elections held in those regions. Um, but each time, first President Poroshenko, who was elected after the coup, and then President Zelensky, who ran as a peace candidate in 2019 and promised to end the, the civil war, both of them, when they tried to move forward, the, you know, these, these neo-Nazi groups now integrated into the Ukrainian military, um, flexed their muscle, held demonstrations, put up roadblocks, literally roadblocks to prevent troops being pulled back from the, the front line. And, um, and, and so at each, at each point, uh, first Poroshenko and then Zelensky gave in to them. You know, po Poroshenko has, is on record having said that he only agreed to the Minsk II agreement to buy time. But um, he, he did try to, but Parliament actually uh, passed an autonomy bill on its first reading. But the neo-Nazi groups organized demonstrations through the streets outside that the turned violent. Uh, one National Guardsman was killed and, and uh, um, hundreds of people were injured and dozens were arrested and, and so on. And, and so it, it, it never got any further at that point. Then we're, and so, so, you know, then Poroshenko just refused to talk to the people in Donbass and started calling them terrorists. And, and then Zelensky came in promising peace, but then went through exactly the same process when he encountered opposition from the neo-Nazi groups, including with, within the military. Um, he, ba he backed off. Uh, I mean, the, the leader, the, the, the le former leader of right sector, who was by then the leader of a, a militia fighting the war, um, you know, issued a threat that Zelensky would be hung from a tree in the main street of Kiev if, if he went ahead and followed through on the Minsk agreement. And, uh, um, you know, so that was the end of Zelensky's peace efforts. He too ended up refusing to talk to the I, I want to ask Lydia. I, I just thank you so much, Nicholas. You, you've given us a lot of uh, important background to, to better understand what happened with the Minsk Accord. Medea, do you think that the sh shipments of uh, U.S. weapons undermined this accord? Well, certainly, uh, starting in 2015, the U.S. began these uh, shipment of weapons and began training uh, Ukrainians, 20,000 of them a year, began including Ukraine in these military exercises. You know, it's interesting to see Zelensky when he... Uh, submitted his fast track application to NATO said, we are um, the de facto a member of NATO. Uh, and that is very true because of the incredibly close collaboration between the militaries of NATO. Uh, you know, part of NATO, becoming a member of NATO is to have compatibility uh, in the military sphere. And that has been happening um, for the last several years. So I think um, the US role in 
uh, in militarizing Ukraine has been a disincentive to making the Minsk uh, agreements work. That was a segment from Code Pen Congress, which meets online the first and third Tuesday of each month to connect the dots between foreign and domestic policies. Join us at codepink.org backslash Congress. Medea Benjamin and Nicholas J.S. Davies are now on a nationwide tour visiting universities and community centers to talk about their book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. On the tour, they are inviting all peace-loving people, that's you, to join our Peace in Ukraine coalition that calls for a ceasefire, negotiations, and an end to arms shipments that escalate the fighting. If you'd like to join our coalition, visit www.peaceinukraine.org. Also, if you're interested in bringing Medea or Nicholas to your city or hometown, sign up at codepink.org. Medea and Code Pink have produced a terrific movie, it's about 20 minutes, that explains events leading up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Minsk Accord, what happened to that, and opportunities for a diplomatic settlement. If you'd rather host a small gathering in your living room, a few few people, a few friends, show the movie, discuss the film, decide what your next steps will be, you can download the video, the movie, and a script at codepink.org. You're listening to Code Pink Radio. Coming up, NATO versus the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons with guest Alice Slater, board member of World Beyond War, and the Diffuse Nuclear War Campaign with Norman Solomon, National Director of Roots Action. First, Marvin Gaye. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today Father, Father We don't need to escalate You see, war is not the answer For only love Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see on Code Pink Radio is Alice Slater. She serves on the executive board of World Beyond War and the advisory board of Nuclear Ban U.S., supporting the mission of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. 
which won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize for its work on the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. My friend and Code Pink sister Alice Slater began her long quest for peace on Earth as a suburban housewife when she worked on Eugene McCarthy's presidential challenge to Johnson's illegal war in Vietnam. As a member of the Lawyers' Alliance for Nuclear Arms Control, she traveled to Russia and China on numerous delegations engaged in ending the arms race and banning the bomb. I'm Marcy Winograd for Code Pink Radio. So pleased to be with Alice Slater, a legacy in the anti-nuclear movement. Um, Alice has uh, drafted, well, you worked on the on the first draft of the Nuclear Posture Review for Veterans for Peace. This is in anticipation of President Biden releasing a nuclear posture review, as presidents do. We're still waiting for that nuclear posture review, though we know that he has reversed his campaign promise to uh, prohibit the first use of nuclear weapons. It's apparently in the summary of the nuclear posture review still to be released. Uh, there is no prohibition. Uh, what do you make of this, Alice? And maybe you can give us the the background on our situation today as we face the threat of the United States, Russia, a, a nuclear armed country using nuclear weapons. And our own president saying it feels like Armageddon. I mean, imagine that our president of the United States is saying that and doesn't have a clue about how he's supposed to move forward. Well, the veterans figured it out. We decided that since there's been nuclear posture reviews ever since Clinton, Obama, Trump, and that Biden was supposed to come out with one, we would do our own nuclear posture, like correct your nuclear posture. What is the correct nuclear posture, which is to abolish nuclear weapons? And right now there are 30,000 nuclear weapons on the planet. Uh, thir sorry, 13,000 nuclear weapons on the planet. And 12,000 of them are in the U.S. and Russia. All the other countries have 1,000. That's India, Pakistan, China, France, England, Russia, and uh, North Korea. And we've gone from 70,000 to the current 13,000. So we know how to get rid of them. We know how to verify. We know how to inspect. And we've been able to cooperate. But we're in a stage now of... U.S. hegemony, They're, they became very arrogant instead of cooperating with Russia, like when Gorbachev left the whole Eastern Europe go free and the war came down and the Soviet Union dissolved. He asked us not to expand NATO, not to take Germany into NATO because they lost 27 million people to the Nazi onslaught. And we promised him it would not expand one inch to the east. And the latest insults was that we were about to take Ukraine into NATO, which is right on Russia's border. And what if Russia put Canada or Mexico into their military alliance? So a week before he invaded, Putin said, here's my red line, no Ukraine and NATO and this Donbass that had a lot of Russian people there. There was a Minsk agreement. They were going to be a federation and be part of Ukraine, that we we honor that agreement, which uh, the Ukrainian government was not honoring, and we were telling them, forget about it. They wanted to negotiate it and make a settlement there, and we and England were telling Elinsky not to do it. So anyway, we came out with what are the things we're supposed to be doing, and what's the proper posture 
and uh, we have uh, recommendations of immediate recommendations for posture change to reduce the danger of an unintended nuclear exchange, like no first use, take them off high alert, decommission the ICBM weapons and silos because that's a sitting target. I mean, if you have nuclear weapons in submarines or on airplanes, you can they're not a target, but ev- they know where every one of our missile sites are with our nuclear weapons, and we know where theirs are, so we should get rid of those. I mean, that's like asking for trouble. We should get rid of these anti-ballistic missile systems. And we had a treaty with Russia since 72 with the Soviet Union, the anti-ballistic missile treaty that said we'd only build limited amounts of them. Well, Clinton started to uh, uh, disobey it by putting in emplacements in Romania. And Bush came in and finished putting the missiles in Romania and walked out of the ABM treaty. I think people are confused about the anti-ballistic missiles. They say, oh, they're just defensive, you know, to defend a country against a nuclear attack. What they don't realize is that uh, <laughs> with a nuclear bomb, <laughs> you could you could uh, continue to escalate the arms race by trying to overcome the shield or you could use the shield uh, to say we, we can we are protected if we want to launch a first strike. Yeah. Well, the agreement, though, between Russia and the U.S. was that we would only keep one anti-ballistic missile site in each country. They had one near Moscow, and ours was in North Dakota, that if we didn't keep building these anti-missiles, we wouldn't have to build so many missiles to destroy the anti-missiles. So that's what we did. And then Clinton walked in and put them in Romania, you know, and uh Trump put them in Poland, and we have nuclear weapons in five NATO countries. We U.S. nuclear weapons in Germany, England, Belgium, uh, Turkey, and uh, what was the fourth one? Germany, England, Holland, Holland, and Turkey. And, uh, you know, Putin's been making little remarks during this whole awful time about putting nuclear weapons in Belarus. Well, he, they never had any anywhere before. He's just talking now for the first time. And Oscar Arias, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, that was president of Costa Rica that got rid of his army, he wrote a letter during this war saying, why don't we make a deal that the U.S. take their nukes out of NATO countries and Russia doesn't put them in Belarus and then we have negotiations and talk and Yes, I'm, uh, negotiations are long overdue, as we know, and it was really shocking. Well, I don't know if shocking is the word, but uh, very upsetting to hear Biden the other morning say, we are not going to, I will refuse to meet with Vladimir Putin, Putin except to discuss the basketball star who's imprisoned in Russia on drug charges. Uh, and then just several hours after that, he said, no, I won't even discuss that with Russian leaders. This is not diplomacy. This is insanity. We're nuts. We're we're so arrogant and nuts. Anyway, the other things that veterans call for is to sign this new treaty that says nuclear weapons are illegal. You can't have them. You can't use them. You can't threaten to use them. The Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Up till now, we had the Non-Proliferation Treaty where five countries promised to make good faith efforts. Well, Obama budgeted over a trillion dollars for 20 years for two new bomb factories, airplanes, missiles, submarines, weapons. Trump upped it 
Biden up that. I mean, this is not some right wing conservative. This was, you know, progressive Obama. So um, and then we walked out of the U.N., uh, the IMF, INF Treaty, Intermediate Nuclear Range Forces Treaty. Trump walked out of that one. We never ratified the Comprehensive Tespian Treaty, although Russia did. Russia and China keep begging us to negotiate treaties to keep weapons out of space and to ban cyber warfare. As a matter of fact, Reagan and Gorbachev met when the war came down. Gorbachev said to Reagan, let's get rid of all our nuclear weapons. And Reagan said, great idea. So Gorbachev says, but don't do Star Wars because we have a vision statement to dominate and control the military use of space. And Trump actually just created a space force, which Biden did not disband. And uh, Gorbachev said, forget it. We're not going to give up our nuclear weapons if you're going to dominate us in space. And then Russia and China keep putting in these model treaties to space bans, cyber bans. Putin called Obama when we boasted about the Stuxnet virus with uh, Israel that we knocked out Iran's enrichment facility. We hacked it. Putin called Obama, said, let's negotiate a cyber ban treaty. We said no. So, you know, there was this comic strip in the 50s, Pogo, Walt Kelly's Pogo during the Cold War that had a famous line, we met the enemy and he is us. And Elf. the power is in within us. We could do it. We could get the NATO yes. out. We could bring home the weapons. We could stop the the modernization trillion dollar plan. Let them rust in peace, you know, and and pass the nuclear weapons abolition and economic and energy conversion act. I mean, there's so much we can so do. much we can do. But we we really need people to engage. You know, uh, we need people not just to call their lawmakers. We do that a lot on Code Pink Congress, as you know, but to be at their office, to pick up their offices, to uh, write op eds, to just build awareness. Very few people even know that we are on a trajectory to spend over a trillion dollars over the next few decades on nuclear rearmament. I refuse to call it nuclear uh, modernization, which is what the yeah. term uh, lawmakers use, because we're, we're producing new nuclear weapons. But wait, there's you know, there's so much you've mentioned, Alice. What do you think is the low-hanging fruit? What can people do who are listening? It's it's overwhelming. I, you have to show up in the offices of your members of Congress and, you know, tell them what for. You have to be there in person, go locally, you know, just get into it. I don't know. I mean, like the big, the big block is the Mickey mat. It used to be the military industrial combat. They're calling it the military industrial congressional intelligence media academic think tank conference. We're so brainwashed. We're so taught to think only bad things about Russia, only good things about us. We don't really know what's going on. It's very hard to know which news source to trust. You know, I was recently at an event where uh, I had friends from high school say, we've got to continue arming the Ukrainians and yeah. fight to the last Ukrainian and uh, we need regime change. And all of this, you know, parroting what we're hearing from uh, sources like what? The White House, the Washington Post, the, Sec the Secretary of Defense. And the my New response York is, you are asking for either an endless war and total global destabilization or nuclear war. That's how this could end unless we sit down and call for an immediate ceasefire and peace negotiations and stop arming and fanning the, the flames of this war. So we have so much educating to do just within our own spheres of influence. 
But Alice, I want to thank you so much for all the work that you have done on this nuclear posture review of the Veterans for Peace. This is a counter to our anticipated nuclear posture review from President Biden. And keep on with all of the incredible work that you're doing. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you or an organization working on nuclear disarmament, where should they go? Well, first, I would go to World Beyond War, www.worldbeyondwar.org, because it's not just nuclear weapons. It's the whole war system that keeps them in place. And I think we have to have a bigger frame, you know. Uh, and also, ICANW, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, they are doing city resolutions and, you know, parliamentary pledges and congressional resolutions calling on our country to sign the ban treaty. Um, so those, and certainly Code Pink, they're doing the best work in terms of activism, getting out. Well, I, I can't argue with you there. And we put out some uh, <laughs> statements, as you know, press releases uh, timed uh, when the uh, United Nations was meeting to look at the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And we talk about the importance of supporting the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Get your city council, your state legislature, Get them on record in supporting that treaty. Thank you so much. Alice Slater, Code Pink Radio. Thank you, Marcy. I'm Marcy Winograd for Code Pink Radio. Thrilled to be with my friend Norman Solomon today. Norman founded the Institute for Public Accuracy. He is the national director of RootsAction.org. He's the author of I don't know, a dozen books, including War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spitting Us to Death. He has a forthcoming book coming out in 2023, War Made Invisible. So we will stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, let's talk to you, Norman, about Diffuse nuclear war. This is a new campaign, as I understand it, for Roots Action. Tell us about it. Yeah, I'm really pleased that a campaign as a coalition has really gotten momentum. I mean, the sad part is that part of the impetus is the growing threat of nuclear war, which even the mass media, if not Congress, has been willing to acknowledge. The good part is that under that broad umbrella of diffused nuclear war, a lot of groups have been organizing together. We had a preliminary live stream in June, and then just in recent days, uh, more than 40 events, mostly picket lines uh, on October 14th, in front of district congressional and Senate offices. And it was a way to mobilize. So a lot of groups, Code Pink, Peace Action, Veterans for Peace, and others around the country uh, have joined with Roots Action in making this happen. And there's been some you know, regional media coverage around the country. I think you know an executive summary of what the message is to members of Congress is, wake up, don't keep exactly. sleepwalking. Exactly, towards, they are know, sleepwalking yeah. into a, you know, a nuclear war. And, and God forbid, uh, we have to do everything in, in our, that's humanly possible to stop this this slumber and to wake people up. And so I really appreciate what you're doing. Code Pink is 100% behind your efforts here. Let's talk about your demands of Congress. So I'm looking at Say No to Nukes. This is the leaflet for Diffuse Nuclear War. And it, the first the first demand is end the policy of first use. So yeah, it's do we some... have a policy of first use? 
really the United States government does, and it gets lost in the shuffle. I mean, there has been tremendous and appropriate condemnation of Vladimir Putin basically threatening and keeping the option open of the Russian government initiating, being the first to use nuclear weapons in the Ukraine horrific war, which Russia uh, started and is responsible for. At the same time, we don't get media coverage of the fact in this country that the United States government keeps the option in its so-called defense posture, its military policy, it retains the right and asserts the right to be the first to use nuclear weapons in any conflict. So this is the pot calling kettle black. It's uh, insanity on both sides to have this policy. And so, as you mentioned, Marcy, one of the calls that people have put forward in recent days under the diffused nuclear war umbrella is to say, and the first use policy, you know, it depends on how you look at it, but the United States as Russia, both countries have a first use of nuclear weapons policy. It is absolutely unhinged. It is. And when you read it, the nuclear posture review from past presidents, it says uh, that the United States will, will consider the use of nuclear weapons if, if its integrity, if its interests are threatened. It's so broad as to be just frightening. Now, President Biden, he campaigned on a platform to prohibit the first strike of nuclear weapons. He still has not released his nuclear posture review, but from the summary, it appears that he will not follow through on that campaign promise. So we've got to push our Congress on that. Your second demand is rejoin nuclear weapons treaties the U.S. pulled out of. Tell us about those treaties. It's really stunning to me that we hear virtually nothing from Congress or U.S. mass media about the fact that George W. Bush in 2002 pulled out of the ABM treaty, the anti-ballistic missile treaty, unilaterally pulled out of it with Russia. And then in 2019, uh, President Trump pulled the US out of the INF treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. And that especially infuriates me because those of us who are old enough to remember the anti-nuclear peace movement of the 1980s can recall that this is a great triumph of the international peace movement. It's because of demonstrations across Europe and the United States and elsewhere that we got the INF Treaty to eliminate an entire class of medium range nuclear missiles. And yet President Trump pulled the US out again unilaterally of this agreement in 2019 and an equal crime against uh, sanity, you might say, is that the Democratic administration now, the Biden people and Democrats in Congress, they're not saying boo about it. So both of those treaties avowedly, and I think accurately said, these agreements will reduce the chances of nuclear war. So why should we not immediately be rejoining both? Yeah, the crazy thing is now that Trump is campaigning as a peace candidate. I don't know if you've heard him, Norman, but you know, he's on Truth Social, his social media platform. He's on, he's at his rallies. He's booming. I would have never uh, gotten us into this situation. I would have met with Putin. Uh, I can negotiate. I will be a volunteer negotiator. Yeah. Yet he did not even negotiate the continuation of two very important arms control treaties that you just explained. Your next uh, demand is take U.S. nuclear weapons off hair trigger alert. What's hair trigger alert? Well, it really applies to 400 siloed underground ICBMs, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are 
deployed and armed 24-7 in five U.S. states. And because they're land-based, they're on hair-trigger alert, which means they're ready to fire at any time. And because they are vulnerable in military terms to withstanding a first strike and being uh, knocked out, the president of the United States has literally minutes, by some accounts, 10 minutes uh, to decide whether it's a flock of geese or some other kind of false alarm or a real attack. And so in that way, as Daniel Ellsberg has pointed out at length in his great book, The Doomsday Machine, as former defense secretary, um, William Perry has said, these are extremely, extraordinarily dangerous weapons. And contrary to conventional wisdom, if the US, you know, uh, Marcy often in parlance, uh, political uh, jargon, unilateral is a bad word. No, often unilateral is a good idea. And this is one of those examples where if the US would on its own, you know, forget what Russia does or doesn't do, we decommission and shut down all 400 of our ICBMs, the whole world, including the United States, of course, would be safer. And it's been very tough to make this connect with people in Congress and in media, because eyes begin to glaze over when we talk about this, and yet it's absolutely vital. Yes, I've read that the people in the Midwest where these missiles are in underground silos are considered a nuclear sponge, that they would take the brunt you know, <laughs> of a nuclear attack because there's no it's not a secret where these missiles are, right? Yeah, so, that's right. It's throughout the Midwest. All right, let's, uh, let's look at your next demand, Norman. I'm interviewing Norman Solomon, the National Director of Roots Action About Diffused Nuclear War. This is a campaign to reach out to our members of Congress and say, take a stand for sanity here and stop this trajectory of nuclear rearmament, which we are on full force. It, and I will mention that those ICBMs, the 400 that you mentioned, uh, they are slated to be replaced with 600 ground-based strategic deterrent missiles. So this is, this is a big challenge for us. Okay, it says get support congressional action to avert nuclear war. What can we do? Well, there is some legislation that's come from Ed Markey and elsewhere uh, in Congress to say, First, there needs to be the aspirational statement, which is worth something, it's not a whole lot perhaps, to say that the United States is gonna to move towards the abolition of nuclear weapons. You know, in the, in the non-proliferation treaty decades ago, that was the affirmed commitment of the nuclear power states. Of course, it's been completely ignored by the nuclear power states uh, since then. And so I'm uh, not, really optimistic about existing legislation because frankly, it often seems to be a sort of a feel good uh, virtue signaling enterprise. A member of Congress will sign off on a bill saying the United States should aspire to eliminate nuclear weapons. And then they go about their daily business of appropriating billions and billions of dollars for new nuclear weapons. And they also appropriate money to ship arms to Ukraine without any effort to force the Biden administration to push for genuine diplomacy. And of course, arming, arming, arming in this uh, powder keg and such a deadly war already in Ukraine, uh, that simply increases the chances of a nuclear tripwire being tripped and nuclear war. Yes. Yeah, so what we need to do is we need to be in front of our Congress members' offices, our senators' offices, 
picketing uh, or perhaps outside and inside at the same time, delegations meeting with our representatives saying, hey, you know, you have the authority to deny funding for new nuclear weapons, to, to take out these 400 ICBM missiles, to support, to call on Biden to support the prohibition on the, the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. So it's really up to us, the grassroots. Absolutely. And I would jump in, you're reminding me that one of the beauties of our movement as it grows now is the decentralized and coordinated nature. And so, you know, I mentioned there national groups, Roots Action, Code Pink, Peace Action, Veterans for Peace. These are important organizations nationally. And at the same time, what's so crucial is the grassroots organizing. And what was exciting to me is that in mid-October, we had several dozen different cities where local and regional groups really made it happen because that's really where our future activism is. Yeah, I think back to the nuclear freeze movement of the 80s and we had cities passing resolutions, ordinances saying no nuclear material will pass through our city. So we need to see a resurgence of those sorts of ordinances. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Lastly, you have on this flyer, it says, move the money to human needs, not war. How about that? Hmm. This How is much such money a is going to war? How much such a chronic amount. Well, really, it's up to about $1 trillion a year with a T. And it's just such madness. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. during the last year of his life referred to the runaway military spending of the era as a, quote, demonic suction tube, unquote. And that's what it is. It's killing people by omission, by failure to provide funds for healthcare, education, housing, environmental protection, elder care, so many different aspects in this country and around the world. And one of the things that's very disturbing to me, and I think we need to uh, as progressives or however we define ourselves, really come to grips with is that many of the really good members of Congress who have been calling for, not enough of them, but quite a few of them, calling for, let's say, cutting 10% of the U.S. military budget or cutting $100 billion, then they turn around and spearhead or at least support sending tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine with armaments. So it's almost a bookkeeping shell game where if there's advocacy and it's not getting very far, but advocacy for, yeah, we need to cut the military budget. And then it's sort of in a different category out of a different pocket escalation of spending, which the military industrial complex is licking its chops over in terms of such a wonderful feast of profit taking and war profiteering. I think we need to hold feet to the fire of members of Congress, even the best ones we can think of and say, yes, we appreciate what you're doing, but we don't appreciate you participating in the military escalation shell game. And so for that and many other reasons, I invite people, uh, go to the defusednuclearwar.org site, sign up and help make it a mobilization tool wherever you live. Absolutely. Thank you so much for all of your efforts, Norman, for what Roots Action is doing. And I want to remind those listening that you can also visit codepink.org, get involved in our Divest from the War Machine campaign, where we're asking cities to divest pension fund money from companies like Northrop Grumman that has the sole source contract to build those 600 new intercontinental ballistic missiles in the Midwest. There are plenty of grassroots activists who are just, you know, we have zero tolerance at this point for uh, continuing to fund, as you mentioned, the military budget to the tune of nearly a trillion dollars, while so many needs, 100 million uh, people are in debt in the United States, you know, millions yes. are homeless and hungry. So 
Thank you so much, Norman Solomon. And we'll visit that website, diffusenuclearwar.org. And we'll be out there on the picket line. Wonderful. And huge appreciation to you, Marcy Winograd, and to all of Code Pink. Thank you. You've been listening to Code Pink Radio, broadcast on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, Texas, and KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, also on community and college radio stations throughout the United States. I want to thank our guests, Medea Benjamin and Nicholas J.S. Davies, co-authors of War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Also, Alice Slater of World Beyond War and Norman Solomon of Diffuse Nuclear War. I'm Marcy Winograd, inviting you to learn more at CodePink.org and to organize and mobilize for peace. Thank you. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War. Our 